Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 243 The Myth of the Teacher. We're joined again by Buddhist teacher Martin Batchelor, this time to explore the changing roles of teacher and student in contemporary Buddhist practice. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Part of this crossroads that you're describing. I can also see that there's many other things besides just kind of how we orient to practice. There's all sorts of things that are changing with these beautiful traditions as they move into the sort of modern world. And one of the ones that is so fascinating and so interesting has to do with learning, has to do with how we learn, and also with our roles as students, as learners, and then also with teachers. And You've spent time in both of these roles, a lot of time, both being a student and a teacher. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, how you see these roles changing, in particular the teacher role, as this tradition, as these traditions basically move into the modern globalized world. First, I think what we have to be careful when we talk about teacher in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, you have different models. You have the guru model, you find more with the Tibetan. You have the Zen master model, you find more with the Japanese. And then you have the what's called the good friend, good guide model, you find more in the Theravada tradition, but also in the Korean Zen tradition. So I think also we have to see which model are we in. Mm-hmm. Personally, I am more fond of the third model, which is the original model of the Buddha, of the good knowing advisor, the good friend, the guide. So the teacher is not put so much on a pedestal. It's just somebody who is a human being like yourself, and he's just kind of working on the way, but might be a little more advanced. As my teacher used to say, we are on a train. I may be a little more ahead in the train, and you might be maybe in a back wagon of the train, but we're on the same train. We're not on a different train. So... I think it's very important to see how do, because I think there is such a myth of the teacher. The myth of the teacher, I mean, you know, like people ask me, should I find a teacher and et cetera, et cetera. There is a big myth of the teacher. Then, as a teacher oneself, do we believe in that myth of the teacher? Because that can create problem too, that we think we must be, you know, this great teacher. And then we can see we might be a good teacher, but my question is more, are we a good human being? This is really my, my question. And also as a teacher, I think we have to be very careful how we teach. And personally, what I found wonderful and what I really liked with the Garrison Conference was that when I met the younger teacher, the one who had practiced for 20 years, what I really loved with the younger teacher was that they are doing it in so many different ways, in so many different places. In a way, I felt myself, I straight, very young, I went 
I became a nun, then I came out, then, you know, I was a house cleaner for 10 years to earn money, and then I became a coordinator, and then after that, I've just been a teacher and a writer. So I would say in terms of work, my life practice is, you know, I've kind of don't know much about working life. When I felt the people I met in that conference really had a lot of this kind of experience of being in the world. And I think we have to be careful not to think that to have a spiritual background is higher than having experience from life. I think both are very useful. So that's why I think nowadays, because of maybe this more democratic and more egalitarian, especially with also with men and women teaching, it seems to be so much more creative. That yes, we have some teacher are more the traditional mold, but I find wonderful that people find many different ways to share the practice. Because what is more important? Is it that I must be the teacher with a big T and then I need to get a disciple with a big D and found a big organization? Or is it more important that there is this teaching which helps us to develop wisdom and compassion that I can share with others so they might have less suffering and they can also develop more wisdom and compassion which will also be not only benefit to themselves but benefit to everybody around them. So personally, I would be more for a teaching model which actually would be more like what the Buddha taught at the beginning that after five years, the Buddha said, you practice for five years, you really learn and study and practice for five years, and then you go out into the world for the welfare of the many. So I think it depends what kind of teacher we're talking about here. Yes. This is a very complicated. Yes, it's very complicated. And it's interesting because before this interview, I wasn't aware that the Korean way of teaching is different than the sort of Japanese Zen which is sort of more akin in my experience to the guru model, at least maybe in the Rinzai tradition. So it's really interesting to bring up this fact that there are different teacher models, even within the Buddhist tradition. You see, it's actually cultural. This is what is interesting. It's cultural. Like in Korea, they have much more influence from the Confucianist society. So then you have some system which is a little more open-ended in some way. When in uh, Japan, you have much more the samurai, feudal model. And then uh, in India, you have a different model also. So no, that's what is very interesting. In Korea, they're really about the good knowing advisor. And they don't check you all the time like they would do in the Zen tradition in uh, Japan. Nice. And then, you know, this is something we've explored a little bit on Buddhist Geeks. There's then the whole Western heritage of what a teacher is. And there's all sorts of different models now. Like we have teachers in academia, you know, who are your professors and advisors. And they're probably more like the guides, the good guides, rather than some sort of absolute authority. So it's really fascinating, this whole coming together of different models and ways of approaching learning. I, I really appreciate your perspectives on this. Yeah, because you see, I think, in a way, it's also a question of identity. This is a thing, I think, when we look at, at a teacher, is it to see that the teacher is also conditioned, is also conditional? I met once a teacher who was teaching all the time, nonstop. It was so tiring. 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The person never stops. And actually, it made me realize we have so many roles. One time you are a lover, next time you are a teacher, next time you are a mother, next time you are a daughter. So we have different roles. As human beings, again, I would say we are multi-perspectival. And what I would hope is that actually in all these different roles, we try to be the best we can. And also, I would say with a lot of humility and a lot of seeing that when we teach, as a teacher, generally, you have to make it good. You have to make it, you know, why meditate? It's not easy to meditate. So generally, you have to say, well, it will help you this, it will help you that. So generally, often we present something which is a bit idealistic. And then... If you look at yourself in your life, you're not equanimous all the time and you're not kind all the time. And so I think to me, what is very important as a teacher is to show that we are human beings, like everybody else. And that sometimes we do things which really live up to what we, we hope, to our intention. And that all the time, we actually don't live up to that. And to see, why don't we? Because of conditions. Being a teacher doesn't mean you will be fantastic all the time. But at the same time, not, oh, I am a teacher, I'm not looking at what is difficult. On the contrary, to look at what is difficult. And also to see that the disciple, you learn so much from the people. I mean, I learned so much from people on retreat. The question and ask and the experiences. And so a teacher is not made suddenly because of one experience. But the teacher is made from that being a listener as much as somebody who talks and also somebody who can creatively engage with the conditions. Beautiful. So there's a sense of it being a teacher as a more of a work in progress and there's more in the way you're describing it, sharing of one's humanity to the students so that it's a clear, okay, just because I'm teaching doesn't mean I have this all figured out or worked out in some way. Exactly, exactly. I think it's, it's so important. But another thing, personally, which is one of my kind of thing about being a teacher, what I think we have to be really careful is about what I call priming. That we have to become aware that as a teacher, especially on a, on a retreat, especially on a silent retreat, the only thing they hear is you, and you can really influence the experience of the people. And I think we have to be really clear about what is it I'm doing here? How am I influencing these people? How am I responding to what am I creating? And I know for myself, when I teach, I'm very careful of not priming. I mean, we all do some priming to some extent when we teach. We cannot do much about this, but really be careful because people are really influenceable, really suggestible. And I think one has to be very careful. That's why when I teach, I'm like a multi-choice teacher. I say, oh, you might experience this or that or another thing. I kind of try to present different things so that they don't think, okay, it must be like this. I must experience this. I really try to make them see. I mean, my job as a teacher, I feel, is for the person to become their own teacher. So that for them to see, I am the one who knows the best about what's going on. I don't know as a teacher what, 
what they feel or what they think, they really know it. So they actually, I can give suggestions, but then they have to apply them to their own condition. And they're the best knower of their condition. In some ways, I hear what you're describing as a kind of, it's almost a meta point of view in that you're teaching people how to teach themselves instead of necessarily teaching people a specific skill set. Although you're doing that as well, aren't you? Yes, teaching no, no, I am skills. doing that. But the way I present it, you know, if I teach the breath or anything I teach, even the questioning, like when I teach the questioning, what is this? At the end of my presentation of instruction on how to do it, I will say there are three types of people when they encounter this practice. The first one really likes it. The second one thinks it's a stupid question, and I think don't do it. And the third one might become anxious and then do it just a little. So I'm presenting that, you know, it's not the same for everybody. Because personally, I believe whatever we say, generally only 60 to 70% of the people will be able to apply. People sometimes say the breath, this is it. But if you are asthmatic, focusing on the breath is not a good idea. And so I think it's very important not to be so dogmatic or so kind of, you know, this is a way. Personally, I generally present lots of different things and then even each thing in different ways. So that then it's for them to explore and to find, ah, maybe that way it works. Or maybe that way it doesn't work. And they do it themselves. Okay, cool. And then, you know, you're getting into this already, but I think it's important to also ask, um, how does this change our experience of being students or being learners? The way you're describing, the way you teach, um, you're expecting very different things from the people who are learning from you. You're not expecting them to take the instructions, one set of instructions, and just do them without asking questions. And then, you know, to have certain universal experiences, like everyone who does this should experience this. You're sort of expecting people to start to ask their own questions and learn. And that's a different type of expectation. So it'd be interesting to talk about what does it take to be a student in this new way that you're describing? Because I think that is both, it's been done a long time, but then there's a, plenty of examples of of it not being this way, of, of people learning a particular thing and, and finding the truth, in, you know, in capital uh, letters. Yeah, because you see, the thing is that I don't believe in capital truth. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get that. No truth. I mean, I never talk about the truth, especially not with a big team. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, I think kind of like the people are a little self-selected. Because people who come to our retreat or to my retreat, they like this approach. They kind of, they people who are generally a little independent, they're generally self-reliant, and they generally like it. They kind of like to kind of explore. They like to be able to explore. Often when I kind of tell them, you know, uh, you can do it this way or that way or another, or not do it, and then you can do it this way. And they say to me, oh, it's such a relief. A lot of people who have problem with the breath because they become tense with the breath. It's such a relief for them when I tell them to just listen to the sound and that's as good. And then they still come to me, but it might not be as good as the breath. But I tell them it's the same. Because you see, for me, the thing is what I point out before I start any teaching 
is that for me what is important is not the technique, but it's the fact that we cultivate together the concentration and the inquiry, the samatha and the vipassana. You see, I did Zen meditation for 10 years, and then I did vipassana meditation. And what I realized is that in Zen meditation, I also do samatha and vipassana, just in a different way. And that's what I realized it's not the method. It's the fact that we cultivate concentration and inquiry together, which is then going to make the difference. Because by cultivating concentration and inquiry together, you are then going to develop creative awareness and creative engagement. And that's why personally I don't worry so much about the exact technique, because I am more interested in them developing samatha and vipassana, whatever way it is. Because what I think is important is to develop the calm and the clarity. But I believe that the way concentration works is actually by returning, not by staying with the thing all the time, but that each time you return, you're not feeding your habit and you dissolve their power. And that's what will create some spaciousness. And then with the questioning, what I believe is that by cultivating the questioning, you're dissolving the tendency we have to permanentize mm. by becoming more aware of change. So I put the thing backward, that I go back to more what is the fundamentals and I'm less interested in the technique. And so when I say that to the people, I said what I think is important is that you can find a technique, whatever it is, which together you can cultivate concentration and inquiry. And so once I start in that way, then it's kind of generally very clear and uh, it's not confusing. And what is interesting is that it works. Because you see, to me, what is important is not the truth. What is important is the grasping. Because what is it that stops us is grasping. And so I believe that by cultivating the concentration and the inquiry, then the grasping happens. And then we can be creatively engaged in the world. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network 
And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.